0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to Red Inca on ninety nine point nine four, the sound of cricket. Download our app for all your podcasts and commentary. Our shows include Double Century on the history of the game, plus podcasts on the West Indies, England, South Africa, Sri Lanka, and India. You can find them via all of our social media at ninety nine nine four DM, or by searching in your podcast places or YouTube for the name of your team and ninety nine point nine four Cricket's Conversation. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. All right, let's get this party started and do some questions from Patreon. Let's see what we have first. Rhubarb says, were the boundaries in the women's hundreds smaller than women's T20 internationals played in England? Some of the games seemed quite small on TV, but I wasn't sure if uh, that was usual for those stadiums or just camera angles. I did. I only saw the games on the TV. I didn't actually visit any um, men's or women's hundreds games uh, this season. Um, I did hear from some friends that there were some small boundaries. Having said that and having traveled to 100 games and Blast Games over the years, there's some pretty small boundaries on Quite a, few, um, quite a few of those grounds for the men, let alone the women. So I do think that um, that's maybe a slightly more common thing, uh, uh, you know, for domestic. Generally for international, they do try and keep them at a sensible looking on on camera <laughs> level. Uh, that doesn't always happen for that, the franchise stuff um, and especially for some of the women's stuff. So I think some of the you know boundaries have probably been a bit insulting. I can't remember what, there was one of the games I was watching. Oh, it was actually in the women's CPL. I can't remember which team it was, but there was a woman just regularly putting the ball into the boundary. and like, Sorry, putting the ball into the crowd. Um, and the boundaries are like 30 meters in from that. And I've seen Lizelle Lee do something similar as well. Yeah, I think administrators think it's a good idea. I actually think it's a bad idea. And the reason I think it's a bad idea is it's a bit like watching women's basketball lowering the hoop and, and you know, suddenly expecting everyone to be able to, to dunk the ball. You're only still going to get a couple of players who probably can dunk the ball. They're still not going to have the kind of athleticism. The actual, for me, the reason I always like women's basketball and very similar with women's cricket is that it is a different sport and it does have different, uh, pace to it whether it be the bowling pace and even the spin bowling pace. also the way that the batters maneuver the ball around the field the circle is smaller so you know all these little things in women's cricket make it unique um bringing the boundaries in is actually making it a bit more like men's cricket i'm not sure if that's how i would specifically go after it um especially as we get towards a more athletic version of men's t20 cricket i'm not sure if women's t20 cricket needs to follow that i mean the athletes will get more athletic anyway so in some ways it's a silly thing to artificially do it but that's a different conversation perhaps Aditya says how do you see pants t20 career he's played 57 t Twenty internationals nationals with a strike rate of 126 why is he not being able to crack t20s the way he has tests and to extent odis well wow. you you've given me his uh t20 international stats but uh i don't care about them um <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, I'd much rather look at his overall stats. So let me just go into his overall stats. I think there was a couple of years there where he's an absolute freak T20 player. I think Virat Kohli, uh, perhaps Ravi Shastri, and certainly Ricky Ponting uh, convinced him to be a different kind of player uh, after a while. And uh, what they tried to turn him into more of an anchor. Uh, Let's have a look. In T20 cricket, he has a, a... Average of 32 and a strike rate of 145. So he doesn't have a T20 problem, right? That's the most important thing to take from that. That he hasn't done well for India is a really interesting thing because you look at those numbers and you go, well, wait a minute. If he is that good at T20 cricket, why is that not translating? And I wonder how many of those, uh, and you'd have to go through it, you know, maybe perhaps year by year to give you a really good um, answer there. But Rishabh Pant is an automatic um, player, uh, in, in India's best 11 for me in T20 cricket. But then when he plays for India, I don't think he's been playing the way that he should be playing. And I think I could say the same for him at Delhi over the last couple of years as well. I think there was certainly a point where he was completely off the chain and he was playing the way that I thought best suited his skills. Uh, the way that he can disrupt what bowlers do means there isn't really many options for you to bowl to him. Um, I think he's a more talented version of Nicholas Puran. Um, and so he doesn't have, and I think Nicholas Puran's really talented as well, but I think Rashad Pant's just a little bit better than him. I'm not really sure how you, how you can uh, get on top of him. And yet he kind of gets on top of himself. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't think he's a bad T20 player. I think he's been bad for India, which is a different thing. And I think that goes into what roles have been giving him. The, the, the strike rate is, ridiculous right why is he striking at 20 um slower well it's probably, probably even less than that right he's probably striking at what 20 25 slower when he's playing for india than he is domestically and most of his domestic t20 cricket is going to be in the ipl which is of the same level of internationals maybe not quite the high heights but overall you know a very high level um uh, uh you know and you, your average international game now is probably no stronger than an ipl game so it doesn't make any sense at all um, to see that. So I would say that that has something to do with the way that he's been managed and it goes back into, you know, something I've talked about probably heaps of times on this podcast before is I really do believe that they have an anchor issue within Indian cricket. Um, I still think they're thinking about these things in a very old fashioned way. And I think you can find other players who can be anchors, you know, that Rishabh B. Rishabh um, is probably the way that you would want this to go. Christopher says, uh, your knowledge on history always impresses me. Well, I'm glad I read that part out, Christopher. Uh, if you were to do a quiz to name all the Test cricketers and histories who, and had 24 hours to do it, how many do you think you could name? Uh, I think there's 3,109 previous players. That's Christopher's question, by the way, not mine. Um, I don't know. It's, that's a really interesting one. I think there's probably black spots. I'm um, not a great person of the maybe 50s, early 60s. Um, probably pretty good on maybe early 1900s, probably pretty good on 1930s. Um, I'm trying to think what other eras. And then afterwards, I think after the seventies, um, there's so many cricketers, it probably becomes a problem. Um, but yeah, I have done some cricket trivia before, uh, and done quite well in it. In an audience of other people who, uh, you know, were cricket fans. Uh, in fact, here's a fun one for you. I got my chance, really, to start my commentary career, my professional commentary career, after Test Match Sofa was with ABC, and it all came on the back of a cricket trivia uh, thing with BBC had. So the BBC had a team, and I think on on the other team was Miles Jupp. Um, Simon Hughes and Mark Butcher. So they're three very smart uh, people. And in, you know, in, in the case of um Simon Hughes, he'd written a book about the history of cricket as well. I hadn't written my book, I don't think, at that stage. Um, and Mark Butcher's got a pretty good memory for that sort of stuff as well. Um, and then and then on the other side, uh, it was myself, Jim Maxwell, and um, I forget his name, but it was a guy from Neighbors. <laughs> and he was just like there for comedy. And like they had Miles Job, who like wrote a book about cricket. And we had a guy about who, who had been on Neighbours. And just before the start, Jim let in and said, I hope you're good at this, I'm terrible at trivia. And I was like, oh God. Um, and then and then the Neighbours guy leaned into me and goes, do you know what, I don't really follow cricket that much. Um, and so I had to answer all the questions. So uh, I did pretty well I, and I came back the next year and I think we should have won both years actually. I think we lost right at the end, both times. Um, there's still a Tony Doddermade question I got wrong uh, that will haunt me forever in one of those quizzes. Um, uh, but that was all run by Simon Mann. Uh, and I've done some of uh, the Rob Smythe ones as well. I've never done any of the online ones. I think during coronavirus, there's a few um, Indian or Pakistani uh, quiz people that do it. I don't re- I'm don't. i not really a big quizzer. Um, but yeah, I think I have a very good memory. It, it, it's funny. You say there's 3,109 cricketers in uh, in Test Cricket. i have to take your word for it without looking it up, but that sounds right. Um, uh, there's just... Oh, there's about four thousand professional men's cricketers, I think. Um, I don't think that's including the women. Then another, let's one hundred, hundred and 200 women as well. Um, and like sometimes when I get a name wrong, like someone be, oh, you, you know, you've got, and it's like you have to understand how many people are playing professional cricket now, um, and especially because of T Twenty leagues, um, you know, and all that sort of stuff. The sort of level that you have to get to. Not to mention that I uh, commentated on minor league cricket recently, so there was. Well, not 44 new names to learn, but 38, 39 <laughs> new names to learn. So, um, it, look, there's a lot of professional cricketers. And I think being a bit good sports writer is a lot of it is just memory. Um, uh, George Dobell uh, has a near photographic memory. Uh, Usman Samindin is another one who's really good at that sort of stuff. Rob Smythe, who I mentioned before. Uh, Bryden Coverdale was another one. You can kind of throw something at them. And even if they can't get it, they can work their way back towards it. Um, Dan Brinick, um is another one. So there's quite, you know, there's quite a few people out there um, with those kinds of memories. And I think it just helps. And and then with me, it's also that I like history. So I go back probably a bit deeper than some of them do, Christopher. But yeah, to answer your original question, I don't know, but it'd be fun. But I'm never, ever going to do it. Uh, Will says, in light of Johnny Bairstow being injured playing golf, what is your favorite freak injury? Not including your own, of course. Mine wasn't a cricket injury, although I was coming back from the Oval and I was commentating on a test match at the time, so I suppose it's cricket related. No, is it the Trevor Franklin injury? Oh, I'm going to have to Google that. I'm near my computer today so I can look up some stuff. Trevor Franklin. So Trevor Franklin had this ridiculous career where he, yeah, it was (laughs) Trevor Franklin. Of course it was. Uh, He's one of the solo scorers we've ever had in the history of test cricket. I'm talking about Christopher uh, and uh, remembering all my uh, the history and old players, so he he had this incredible career where he didn't average very much, but for New Zealand he batted a lot of time and was the most graftiest of the grafters of sort of any sort of long-serving Test specialist batter that we've ever seen. Just could not hit the ball off the square. Uh, and, but he also had these incredible injuries. Uh, he had about three major injuries off the top of my head. I think he might have broken bones. Either on the same tour twice in England, or on two consecutive tours of England. But the last one was that he was leaving the plane. I think at Gatwick, was he getting on the plane? I can't remember. But he was at Gatwick, um, you know, for the tour of England, and the luggage trolley ran him over, and he missed out on two years of Test cricket. Uh, it's uh, you know a, a bit bit like Bertois. is like what a random freak occurrence. Uh, probably less of a freak occurrence was when uh, Shel Akhtar was left out of Pakistan for genital warts, which you remember. I remember the ECB being, uh, I was trying to get accreditation at the time, and the ECB was saying, um, we can't give you accreditation. You're writing about genital warts. And I was like, the Pakistan Cricket Board put out a press release about genital warts. Um, so that was certainly another one. Was it Brad Hodge who injured himself um, putting his trousers on before a test? I uh, thought it wasn't before a test, was it? it was before a T20 because Luke Pommersbach batch played. Um I think of any other freak ones. There's, there's, I there's some good ones over the years, um, but those are the ones that instantly come to mind. Um, The Sinclair one just it cost him two two years of his. Well, it's unfair to say it cost him two years of his career, but I don't think he played Test for the next two years after that. And it just felt like everything always happened to Trevor Franklin uh, when you go back and have a look at his career. Uh, Oh, wait a minute. Now, was there a Pakistani batter who injured himself? jumping out the window of a hotel room because he was having an affair with a big-time actress. Yes, I'm pretty sure there was. I can't remember the full story, and I can't remember how injured he was. But I've got a feeling that that all happened, and I haven't made that up. And I've written about that before. Um, and that now I need Usman on this podcast. Uh, but great question, Will. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so it does show you that Johnny Besto's not on his own, uh, although he probably would have preferred to have injured himself, you know, with a with a big time actress rather than, you know, uh, playing golf. The says Is there a point at which being tall is a disadvantage for spin bowlers? Could Kareem Abdul Jabbar have made a good leg spin at what? Well, Kareem Abdul Jabbar would have been good at most things, I think. Um, very good writer, if nothing else, as well as probably third greatest basketballer of all time. Um, fourth, I'll put him behind Bill Russell. Um, yeah, I, no, if you're a finger spinner, uh, I don't think height is a disadvantage. I think the way the ball comes out of the fingers for finger spin, I think, and we've seen plenty of very tall finger spinners. I suppose Suleiman Ben is probably our tallest at what, six, seven, six, eight. Um, I'm trying to think if there been many others, you know, Paul Harris is probably what six, three, six, four, Ashley Giles is probably at that that height as well uh, then you've got guys like ashish patel washington sundar maybe even r-, r-, um, r ashwin who are taller again so no i don't think it hurts being a finger spinner at all being a wrist spinner is an interesting one because there is a point of being a wrist spinner that you want the ball to go up and come down and that's very hard to do at pace um consistently uh, if you're taller and and it's something that you see with a lot, there is a lot uh, in the in the wave of after Shane Warne. And Shane Warne wasn't short, by the way, but he was about about my height. He's probably around six foot tall, maybe, maybe six foot one. Um, uh, there is a uh, There was a wave of kids in Melbourne, and I'm assuming this happened in, in the rest of Australia. And you could say this happened with someone like Cameron White as well, who when they were 14, 15, and 16, they were playing like first grade cricket as leg spinners. And then you saw all of them, have a growth support as as you normally do around that age if you're a boy and almost all of them afterwards weren't as good now are those two things related i've kind of always thought they might be but i don't know i've never talked to anyone who's done biomechanics on leg spin um uh, ano kumblay wasn't a traditional leg spinner would he be one of the taller leg spinners trying to think um i can't think of too many other top quality leg spinners who've been well above six foot tall not to say that I haven't been a few around six foot tall, but well above six foot tall. So I would say that there's probably something to that. Um that said, I did once play cricket with a with a leg spinner he was a really good bowler, who's about six foot five, former fast bowler, um, discovered leg spin. And he bowled leg spin in a completely different way than anyone else. A little, little bit, I suppose, like Anil Kumble, It was so different to normal than your normal club leg spin. And I know a lot of people found him very hard to play, um, but there must be a reason why we haven't seen more players like him at the international level. Um, And and when you look at – and this is just off the top of my head, so I'm hoping I'm not missing anyone obvious here. Uh, But when you look at um, Cameron uh, White and Enel Kumblay, they didn't spin it a lot, and they were both, uh, you know, taller with long arms. type of bowler so i do wonder if there is something there to be said for that but finger spin i don't think that's as much the case at all and in fact you know you watch rakeem cornwall bowl so what's rakeem probably six 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 seven and his height is a huge advantage a huge advantage when he bowls um you know and his action isn't as tight as it should be sometimes and you know there are little things within it where you just go uh, uh, you know, I, w- I wish he was a bit smoother, but he can get away with some of those things because of, because of the height that he delivers from. Um, so I do think um, that is fair. James says, "Is Paddy Shivalka the best Indian player not to play a test since India started playing tests? Could he be the best spinner anywhere not to play a test? Best spinner anywhere to not play a test? I'm trying to think if there's any other spinners that haven't played a test that would be considered better? It's a really good question James. I can't think any of any off the top of my head. As far as India go, I kind of feel like he's probably not the best Indian player not to play a test in that we know how limited the talent pool was of Indian cricket even 20 years ago. So if you're looking on, you know, on that sort of the South African model of not picking from all their players uh, available, then he's probably not. If you're looking at players at the top level, I can't think of any players better than him from India that never played a test? Yeah, oh, it's, it's a really good question. Spinner one, I feel I feel that there's a really obvious one with the spinner, someone who just didn't get a go, but maybe that's not the case. Yeah, spinner, I mean, one of the interesting ones, James, would have been of a spinner, would have been a South African spinner in the 70s due to apartheid. Um. Uh, so Tracos, I suppose, is... It, um, but he obviously, does go on to play Test cricket, and I'm not sure he was a better bowl than Paddy Chevalka. And that's the thing that they don't didn't they weren't really producing as many top quality spinners in that era. They had before, especially before the war. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, I don't. I can't think of any off the top of my head. You know, there's no obvious Jamie Siddons. Is maybe you know, but there's probably a lot of like Glenn Chappell level players, or you know, like every country. I suppose every country doesn't have that, though. A lot of countries do fast-track talent. I can't think of any. to uh, At the moment, he would be at the top of my list. But, uh, you know, if I was to think about it further, maybe I could come up with someone else. Cam says, you touched on it last week, but his current focus uh, that the BPL has on overseas players misguided. A casual fan that you're trying to entice, my wife, not my wife, Cam's wife, uh, has probably never heard of FAF or Dre Russ or DJ Bravo, but has heard of Steve Smith, Mitchell Stark and Nathan Lyon. Is there another angle that they're going for that I'm, I'm not thinking of? Yeah, I think, yeah, I did touch on it last week. I suppose what I was, and I might've done a video on it recently as well, Cam, but I suppose what I was trying to say at a certain point is, does it matter to a casual fan that it's not the best players in the world, right? A casual fan isn't like, well, I'm not going to watch this. What I'm going to do is stay up till 11 o'clock at night in four months time or three, two months time and watch the IPL, Right because that's a better quality league. I don't think that's how casual fans work. I think the way that casual fans work is, oh, there's cricket and it's on prime time. And oh, cool. Uh, okay, yep, there's a few players here. So I think you for me, and I, I said this when they started it, and it's funny, I think I got a lot of the early things with the Big Bash wrong and a few of them very right. And one of the ones that I got very right was by putting it in the middle of the summer, what that actually allowed for was them to cash in on an area that was already popular for australian cricket great the problem is that that's also when they're going to want to play international cricket which means their international players aren't available for their local competition so david warner doesn't play big bash right what a waste so david warner does play ipl and and cpl and other leagues around the world but not big bash that's that's where casual fans i think would be more interested I, as you said, maybe Dre Russ, Faftu Plessy or DJ Bravo, just, you know, you have to be a cricket fan, I think, to know who those people are. M- maybe Dre Russ is the sort of player, or ABW is the sort of player to, to slightly poke their head through that, but probably not. Um, maybe Ben Stokes, right? The, but there aren't many uh, players like that, you know, Virat Coley, Ben Stokes, those sorts of people. So, so, yeah, so when you're thinking about it, so what are you trying to do? So, what they're trying to do with the big bash is they're trying to have this major tournament where your, your major players aren't available and major overseas players aren't available and it's still working. So why are you focusing on that rather than focusing on what you should be working on, which is, okay, it's the Spanish basketball league rather than the NBA, right? The Spanish basketball league still likes having good players around, but they don't, they're not trying to poach people, um, from, from bigger leagues, um, well from the nba if you know what i mean um and they also understand their place in it and they also understand that the best spanish players probably won't play in it so once you did that big conflict where you had the international cricket and big bash either what two things either happen one international cricket gets moved away from that which is possible which would help the big bash uh, with local audiences i would think or you understand that you can actually double dip right and how do you double dip you play the international cricket, you make your fortunes off the, uh, that, and you play your big bash at the same time. But you're aware that your big bash is never going to be absolutely the top quality that it should be as far as internationals and locals go. But you work on other things. Maybe it becomes the the you know the best fantasy league. Maybe it becomes the most uh, statistical league. Maybe it becomes the best you know league for families, which is something they have already on their way. Whatever that may be, right? And and I think that's probably what they should be thinking about a little bit more. I, I I don't know. I haven't haven't been out the big bash or worked in the big bash for a long time. Uh, I don't know what their current thinking is, but I just I don't see what paying Chris Lynn, you know, a lot of money does over then finding the next Chris Lynn in those sorts of leagues. Like the casual fans are yeah, the the cricket fans are going to watch it anyway. Right, and it's going to have normal ups and downs, and there are going to be times when the tournament is rolling, times when the tournament is not rolling. It would be my guess. The casual fans are going to come to it at certain times. That's going to be harder to work out. Maybe it'll be based on a couple of close games. Maybe it'll be based on you know how much it makes the general news. All these sorts of you know variables. How well is marketed? All those sorts of things. Paying big overseas players or even big Australian players who don't play for Australia, I don't see how that is the best case um, usage of the resources for a tournament like that. And I think what I've been trying to say and this is not just this is not just about the big bash. You know, the Bangladesh Premier League is going to have to make this decision. Maybe the hundred might have to make this decision. Uh you know, any league that doesn't end up being an IPL feeder league is going to have to work out what it is. And at the moment I don't think that's really w- the way that everyone is thinking about these leagues um at, yet. And and I think that showed by how upset you know, Cricket Australia was by the UAE League and and, and Chris Lynn potentially and David Warner potentially disappearing. And David Warner doesn't play for them. You know, it's it's such a it's such a weird system. Ian says, uh with the new plan further reducing test cricket outside the big three, will associate nations like Scotland Nepal be deterred from seeking test status? Um uh, I mean that's already happening, Ian. Um it's been happening for a very long time. Uh so Scotland, for instance, don't they don't have a plan to get test status. That's not to say that they don't want test status because it comes with many things that they would like, but they don't have a plan that tells them at the moment that they are going to earn test status. What they have at the moment is a plan to get very good at white ball cricket and then eventually hope to be get to be really, um, promoted into test uh, cricket. I'm assuming places like Nepal and the Netherlands would have similar kinds of plans. So no one, even Ireland and Afghanistan, weren't really their end game was test cricket, but the way to get there was through white ball cricket. So weirdly enough, I don't think that matters. The the interesting thing though is what's the point of test status anymore, right? What has Ireland got out of being a a test status? As far as, and I'm talking from a cricket perspective, they don't play any games, right? Um, Afghanistan don't play many games. Uh, There's no system set up to ensure that everyone gets to play a lot of games. As you've said Even less so. So the big question is, is you know, is is getting test status, and I've heard people say this before, was getting test status a good thing for Ireland? Financially, probably, although not great. Um, As far as the way they were looked at by the cricket world, definitely. But the white ball teams haven't been as good since they got into Test cricket. That could be completely a coincidence and have a lot more to do with the golden generation retiring than anything else. But there is a feeling that it's like, is that what you want to be uh, doing? And if you're not going to be playing Test cricket, and if you're not going to be able to monetize Test cricket, but it does come with other benefits, of course. So it's, it's, the whole thing is really confusing, is the best way of putting that one, in. James has said, Uh, Last time I meant to say, why was Finch asked to open instead of batting in the middle order in tests? Uh, Yeah. Uh, Why was he... I think they just had a hole at opening. Look, they thought they were onto something that he was seeing the ball so well in white ball cricket that he could sort of come in, put pressure back on other teams, um, change the way they play. As I said again and again, that doesn't happen. The The reason they probably didn't want him batting at five or six... Because those are the easiest spots to fill. You don't really want to fill. It's the same. It's the same with Jason Roy. You don't really want to fill those, those spots with those players unless you're really sure that you know they're going to be spectacular. And and you know the best way of looking at that is the Joss Butler experiment with England. Right? It wasn't a total failure. Even if you would argue, all things considered, they probably just would have been better off with Besto or or Stokes. So Stokes, Folks, although Stokes could probably do it too. Um. And, and because they had Butler in that middle order, it meant that they couldn't use people like Olly Pope further down the order. Uh, I think Olly Pope batted a, a three or four when he first came into the test team. And it's easier to find players who can bat at number five, six, seven than it is to find someone who can bat at one, two, three, four. And so I think in that particular situation, they thought that was something that could help. I think the other thing with Finch specifically there josh was that they believed that that was what he was good at in white ball cricket and my i'd have to go back and look at his memory but my memory is he didn't always bat um opening for victoria i can't remember where he batted for surrey and yorkshire but he certainly didn't always open for for victoria and i think they thought well oh maybe the problem was he didn't wasn't opening enough in first class cricket and now he's it the best possible form of his life will send him up to the top of the order and the balls will bounce off that, you know, incredible rubbery like bat that he seems to have where the balls seem to bounce further than anyone else's. Um, And it didn't happen because he doesn't have a good game for red ball cricket. And it's easy to dominate white ball cricket when at most you're going to have one or two slips. Uh, It's easy to dominate white ball cricket when you can hit at four or six and there's going to be an instant bowling change. Uh, that there's fielding restrictions. Uh it's more of a well, white ball cricket is more of a um I'm trying to think of the correct word, more of a formula. So once you get that formula, that's fine. Whereas test cricket doesn't really have a formula like that. And that's why you see players who are very good in white ball cricket sometimes struggle to work out how to pace their innings and where to play their shots. And you know what to do next because there's no obvious thing to do whereas in white ball cricket usually there is you know there's the middle overs when you're knocking around all the easier things you get so the middle overs in one day cricket specifically um you know you talk to international cricketers and you you know there's a reason i think at one stage there was a bunch of players averaging over 70 or something in those middle overs um and it's it's partly because the ball is older, but it's also partly because there was almost like an agreement between everyone. Right, we're not going to attack that much. We're going to try and keep the run rate down, and you're not going to try and lose that many wickets. And we're going to go through that period. There's no period like that in Test cricket. I think it was on the Abhinav Mukund um, one, and I've heard this from other Test players as well. Especially you know when they're early on, you you get to fifty in Test in first class cricket, and something kind of has to go wrong for you not to make hundred. If you're, if you're a top-level player, and I don't mean a test player, but just a top-level first-class player, something kind of has to go wrong. You have to make a real error or someone has to bowl you an absolute freakish delivery because once you're in, you're in. And you might have to face one good spell from one bowler, but it's very rare to get four or five really good bowlers in that. You go to test cricket, and it doesn't matter if you're on 20 or if you're on 120, there's quite regularly always pressure on you. And it, there is no drop-off, right? After after you score a 50, there is no drop-off of, oh, I'm in now. Now I'm knocking around and trying to get up to my 100. And so that is completely – that is something alien to the white ball game. You don't get that same kind of pressure because you do get like a casual agreement between the teams of – you know, we're not going to attack that much now and you're not going to attack that much and then the game will come at the other end. We'll hope that we'll have held you to what we want to hold you to. Um, and, and and that's how it goes. So I do think there is a very different mi- mindset to that. And and I think that that doesn't translate to red ball cricket as much as um, maybe people uh, would, and people who should know better, keep trying it with Aaron Finch, with Alex, Alex Hales, with um joss butler you know lots of these different players sort of come through and it doesn't quite work and i think it is that that extra pressure the extra thinking and the fact that the ball moves more and that you have more catching fielders all those all those things really do play a big part um and i think that in finch's case specifically they probably didn't want him to bat at four or five and start or, or, or four five or six and start against spin either um, in, in a first class um, a, or in a red ball game is, is my guess. But but I think it was mostly that they just thought that is where he would be successful. Um, I'm not, I, I think he's batted almost everywhere in first class cricket, and he's, I, I'd have to go through his numbers, but I don't remember him ever being successful in any period. So I don't think the batting number was the uh, the biggest uh, deal then. Uh, thank you to James. I'm not sure why his thingy doesn't work. Uh, remember, you can put your hand up in the room if you're in Spotify Live and you can ask a question like Ashish Thomas has. Hey, Ashish. Hi, Jared. How you doing, mate? Yeah, so like this question
0: is pretty topical right now because it's pretty fresh for like three, four hours now. So like I was, I just wanted to correlate it to cricket as well. So like I'm a Chelsea fan and Duke got sacked like three to four hours ago. And mm-hmm. uh, I was also just like thinking like uh, Tom Moody, he got sacked by this. I don't know whether he got sacked by right? or so or he was let or it was a mutual consent thing. And uh, Brian Lara was appointed as a new coach. So I was just wondering like uh, do I mean, do coaches don't play that big a role in cricket and does their absence, I mean, or their leaving not create as much as a wave as football
1: or basketball coaches do? I mean, it's different. Uh, it's certainly different than basketball coaching. That's probably one sport that is really coach driven. Um, no, I mean, coaches, I mean, I mean, we just seen England. You'd have to say that a complete change of their game plan, although I would say this, you don't see that many coaches make the kind of game plan changes that McCullum has, which probably why we don't always see that, but certainly that was an impact, right? Um, yep, yep. Uh, yeah, I, I. it's funny you say that because I felt that the Lara thing was a bit of a uh, football-like well, the Moody thing was a bit of a football like thing, slash into the Lara uh, thing. Look, there's huge problems at the Sunrisers. I think we all know that. The whole David Warner thing, um, management there, their decision making, putting Kane Williamson on that contract. Just, I, I find out, and well, I'm pretty sure that, that a lot of that wasn't Tom Moody. So if you're sacking the coach and you're as a management group and as a ownership group, making a lot of bad decisions around him. What do you expect the coach to do um, at, at a certain point? Uh, and
0: especially the and, parallels, uh, thinking like the success that Moody had and like the way that like he won them their only, I mean, in mm-hmm. the guise of Sunrise, he won them their only IPL title and all that. So I'm just looking at it from that perspective as well. If you compare no, it right. to Tokyo as well, he won the Champions League as
1: well. Yeah, I have. Uh, Tom Moody's a really interesting coach because I would say that overall, his record doesn't look that spectacular. And yet he's almost linked to every big job ever. He's obviously you know, a very well-liked person in cricket, a very intelligent person. Um, you know, I don't know him particularly well, but you know, brief chats with him and you know, having listened to him when he had that podcast with Ian Bishop and Freddie Wild. Um, and you know, uh, less so in commentary, but more so in discussion. You, you really do get to see that Tom Moody is, is an intelligent person. And I can see why he comes across well in interviews. But I don't know what his win-loss ratio is in 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 T20 cricket and I'd be interested he's had he's had the, the IPL trophy and he's had the um did he win a world cup with Sri Lanka or did he make the final I've always confused at which who was coach it's hard enough to tell who was coaching Sri Lanka but he had some success I think with Sri Lanka as well but as I said before I'm not sure that that is specifically that the 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 position he was in at the moment looked I mean it's obvious from the outside that there's something wrong with the sunrisers right? And it isn't the coach. And so to get rid of the coach, if that feels like a football decision, but the more football decision is Brian Lara, right? So Yep. Yeah.
0: It's <laughs> bizarre, like, because he's not had any uh, major cricketing job. Like, I mean, last year, I think he was a batting coach or something, but like, yeah, he's had it to, is, like bizarre yeah. when I...
1: Yeah. So the West Indies on 99.94 just put out a great podcast about Brian Lara. Yeah. I, I, list- <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I listened
0: to that episode actually. And, and like so they were saying, talking? like all the guys who've done who've done the yeah. like, coaching badges, they've not gotten an opportunity. And Lara just got the easy route. Like he got money and they mentioned
1: that he'd done he'd done two jobs. So he he, he was the assistant coach at um uh, for the West Indies once sorry, he was the batting coach for the West Indies in one series. He is then the batting coach so he he these. yeah. Right now, he's fifty three, he never played top-level T20 cricket, I know he was there and thereabouts, but he didn't, you know, we all know how good a player he was. That's not in question. How good a coach is he? Ha- right? They didn't bat pretty well. If you look back, uh, this is just off my top of my head, but see if you remember this. Most of the games they won last year is because their bowlers were kicking ass, right? So they're batting, They're batting last year, I, I have to go back and check it, but I didn't think their batting was any good, right? Now, that wasn't just Lara's fault, because I didn't think their squad was very good, but um, the same with when he coached the West Indies, they didn't make many runs. Those are two small things. So I'm not, it's not like the end of the world for this. But what I would say is this, it's just like, it does feel like just a football thing. If, oh, we'll get a football, we'll get a legend in and he'll be fine. Right now we saw with someone like Ravi Shastri that that can have a, you know, if you, if you do the job correctly, you can still do that. And, um, uh, you know, there are people like that who have dropped in. I just don't think that Lara is one of those people. Now, it'd be great if I'm wrong because I, I, I love to see the way that he looks at sport and uh, at cricket and T20 because we don't really know what kind of a T20 player he would have been. So it'd be fascinating to see how he thinks about all this and, and you know, what he goes about it. But having heard him on commentary and, you know, we, I was on the same video series of him on cricket.com at one stage. I saw some of his stuff there. I didn't feel like – do you remember when Ricky Ponting was doing the big bash commentary and you were just like, oh, my God this guy's really thinking about this. This is really interesting. And then he became a coach and you're like, yeah, I can see how this could work. That's not how I felt listening to Brian Lara. Now, how you are in the media doesn't really mean you're going to be a good coach. But what I'm saying is the club was dysfunctional. The ownership is dysfunctional. They made a bunch of bad decisions. Their bowlers won them a bunch of matches last year. They've got rid of the coach, whether that's a good decision or not. And then they've just plopped for a random legend. It just, it feels really football from here. Um, really, really football, and yeah, and like me and my friend, we had this conspiracy theory. So, like in
0: India, there is there was this side uh, segment in Star Sports called the dugout, where all these like these uh, all the ex cricketers they would like would break it down much more. Mm-hmm. So we had this thing. Oh, he was just he was picked to be the batting coach based on like the Sunrisers owners just like seeing one of those things, and I said, oh, this guy seems far Let's just put him in, chuck him in as a Batting coach or consultant of whatever his role
1: was last season. So yeah, that may, I don't know. Like I, I think
0: they're very celebrity
1: driven. Yeah, I mean that happens, and I can say that because I was being hired off cricket info pieces, right? So that does happen, and I'm not saying he's a bad batting consultant or bad batting coach or anything like that. There's a big difference between that job, though, and running an IPL franchise. And I think me and Santoki will probably do an episode on it soon and talking about all the different things in in coaching uh, a franchise. And it's something that, you know, I was involved with the Melbourne Stars going to get a new coach. So I've actually done, um, a, a, what would you call it, um, a coaching headhunting guide. That's a
0: coaching search, right?
1: Yeah. So I was there for that. Uh, I've talked to, you know, I, as general manager, I had to, you know, do a report on Brad Hodges coaching when, when we we're at St. Lucia, you know, uh, I did stuff on the, on the Scottish coaches when I was there. And also I've talked to coaches at times as well, you know, about ways that they can improve and everything. It, it, the whole T20 coaching is such a random thing, but I just not sure that, um, just dropping someone in at 53, Put put it this way, even if it's successful, I reckon if you did it 20 times, how often would it be successful is the is the point, right? So let's say Shastri is successful. How many other people out there are not successful by doing this? And what I'm talking about is I'm not talking about someone like Ponting or Mahalo J. Awardner who had just come out of the game. That's different and it has its own um, strengths and weaknesses as well. But I'm talking about someone who literally hasn't played the game for a generation, suddenly coaching it when they also haven't coached it. That's, I just can't imagine that you're going to have a good success rate doing that overall. Um, and, you know, and and all these things depend on ownership and squad and injuries and all that sort of stuff. But are you putting yourself in the best possible situation? I mean, I'm, you know, you probably followed my stuff. My first five um, summarizes videos are probably going to be making fun of this, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, your power rankings were, like you had them very low in your power rankings. <laughs> I had them low in my power rankings
1: yeah, I had them lower in my power rankings in the last couple of years, and they had Bayless and Moody as coach, right? Where, where am I going to put them with Brian Lara? They might not be on the list, mate. Um, so yeah, uh, no, I think the whole thing's really fascinating. But um, thanks so much for your question, mate. You have a good one. See yeah. you. Henry says, "Are there any players you can think of who would have been particularly vulnerable to a teammate style? So they have notably worse records. Uh, hypothetical, but the Australian batters of the nineties were the weakness against the league spin." I think uh I mean it's funny when you say that because I wasn't thinking uh about Warren, but I was thinking more along the lines of um Matt Hayden facing Gillespie and um McGrath maybe even even Fleming when he was fully fit as well I just think of that against that sort of top level pace bowling attack with the multiple options I think you know Gillespie's probably going to get him nicking off um, a bit playing his drives. I think that McGraw would attack the top of off stump and obviously Fleming would probably – Fleming's probably a better bowler – well, no, Fleming was a better bowler um, than Matthew Hoggard. And I think Matthew Hoggard, while he didn't destroy um, Hayden, I think he gave Hayden in, uh, problems. So that one just comes to me off the absolute top of my head. Um, what would you need? You'd probably need uh, Rishabh Pant versus um, – Ashwin would be absolutely fascinating in a test match. Um uh, you know, uh, I, I know you probably said greats here. I've probably gone to someone a bit more um a bit more early on. I think most of the West Indian players were pretty good against the short ball. Wonder about Jimmy Adams, actually. Now I've said that. G- Jimmy listens to some of this, he might get in touch, tell me I'm wrong. Um, but I do wonder about Jimmy Adams a little bit when it comes to that. Um, against, you know, a prop-up, you know, three and four uh, uh, pace bowling attack. Um, So what are some of the other great attacks? Can't imagine. I mean, if you're... The thing is, it's a really good question, Henry, but it's a really interesting one because generally what happens is the players who come through are shaped by the conditions. And that means the bowlers and the batters. So Australian bowlers are better against pace... Uh, sorry, Australian batters are better against pace bowlers and tall bowlers than other people because that is what Australian conditions breed. And even probably Australian, I I would say that in total, Australia is probably better against wrist spin um, than they are against finger spin because in Australia, wrist spin is usually the harder one to play um, and so you have to get used to it. Um, So, but it is an interesting question. Um, Jimmy Adams is one that just sort of springs up to me and i I've got a feeling he got hit a lot with short balls and was probably a better player of spin. Um, and so therefore, you know, Kirtley and, Co- and Courtney would have been a problem. Matt Hayden's the other one. Um, as I said, something like Rishabh Pant's are really kind of an obvious one. I remember watching a lot of Shane Warne bowling to uh, Mark Waugh. I think he might have made a hundred or a couple of hundreds at the MCG. Um in shield games um and, and seeing a lot of that. That was a fascinating contest. But it wasn't that Mark Wall had a weakness, it was just fascinating because you were kind of watching a test match contest, not in a test. And you know, you had two top-level players going up against each other. Um, and it, yeah, it was it was brilliant to watch. Uh I'll just check, let me check if anyone else has put their hands up. poor Josh who can't get off mute. <laughs> um uh, what have we got here? Uh, said, uh thoughts on Steve Smith's supposed role changing. Self-proclaimed. I think he suits best in his previous role. Oh, I haven't I haven't seen that one? And I feel like Steve Smith's role is discussed more than I'm trying to think of what would be another one. Maybe Vera opening and batting first drop. Joe Root batting first drop in a Test or batting four. I think I feel like in limited overs cricket we're always talking about Steve Smith's role and we're almost never admitting that they're probably, he's too good to drop, but also maybe not quite ideal for the Australian team. It's a really weird one with Steve Smith of how he fits in. Um, And and they can almost get away with that secondary anchor, or that anchor, I should say, because Warner and Finch aren't anchors, even though they score like anchors. Um, And so you could have that. And Look, I, I can't remember when this was, but someone in the Australian camp, told me ages ago that they've just been having these conversations over and over again. And he wouldn't be fair to say he disagrees, but it's he just, he's not quite getting it. Um, Keshev says, people often talk about Ben Stokes at Headingley as one of the best knocks ever, but they rarely mention Kusil Pereira against South Africa. I mean, I just don't think that's true. <laughs> I mean, almost every time Ben Stokes' innings is brought up by someone who's not English, um, Kusil Pereira's innings is brought up. You know, in fact, I think it's become a running joke that you almost have to mention Kuso Pereira's innings, um, at this point. Um, so I really don't think, I don't think that's true. Um, it doesn't get mentioned as much because it wasn't an ashes test okay, sure. and India weren't playing, you know, it was South Africa versus Sri Lanka. Um, it, neither of them have massive, uh, media. Neither of them have the hype around them. I mean, you could make the whole thing about Jimmy Anderson and Dale Stane. If Dale Stane was from one of the three major countries, you know, we'd, he'd be on the face of money, right? Uh, you know, just incredible cricketer. But I really, when people say that, I just don't think that's true about the Ben Stokes one. Um, I mean, my, my great, my, my, um, my running joke, and you can see it, I've written it a bunch of times, is that Ben Stokes might've played uh, the best innings of all time or the second best innings of that year you know it's really common um for that to be mentioned um in fact in some ways i know this is weird in some ways it gets more mentioned because of ben stokes because ben stokes is always going to get more mentioned right england player and he's ben stokes you know documentary all that sort of stuff and so on top of that then what you have is a situation where ben stokes is um always in the conversation and because of that a lot of people will feel the need to talk about um you know uh Kusel's innings whereas i wonder if he'd made it four years before and it started to die down whether that would be the case i don't know but I, I do find that interesting so i don't quite um agree on that uh on the odi front in the test documentary justin langer at one point says they did a vote and who will be captain and finch got picked unanimously how true could that be is that a good thing or a bad thing in your opinion? Yeah. I don't know about players voting for their captains. Um, it, I don't know if it's true. I, I'm trying to think. I probably could ask some of the players. I have to think back who was involved at the time. I know that I don't think people understand outside of cricket or outside the Australian team, but even the Surrey team and probably Yorkshire as well, how well-respected Aaron Finch is on the circuit. Uh He's almost like a father figure. There's so many players that I'm not surprised if that is true. But I'm not a big fan of players voting for captains anyway. I don't think, you know, it's not that democracy itself is bad, but what are the players thinking about? Are they, you know, what are, are they picking the most popular player? Are they picking the best player tactically? Are they picking the best player to prepare them? Are they, you know, I just, I just, I'm not too big of a fan of that, but if it is true, I'm not surprised. As I said, because I do think within the game, it's incredible to me how often I talk to people within cricket, and Aaron Finch's names come up, and there's just never a negative thing. Um, it, and even though we know he has technical flaws, and we know he can't play the red ball, like I remember talking to someone who is one of the smartest people I know in cricket. It's one of my go-to people. You know, international player, uh, long time, you know, professional player. And I, was saying, and I was saying to him, well, it's not going to work. And he's like, nah, Finch, you'll make it work. And I was like, really? Because he's never made it work before. So why would he say? And he's like, oh, no, you've got, you got to understand what he's like. I think people just have this belief in him. Um, and he's so level-headed. And, you know, uh, it, going back to little things like the Sun on the Ryan decision and all those sorts of things, he, I just think he, he, he may, it doesn't come across in the press as well, um, and he's not that sort of person to probably sell himself. But I think that he is, he, and and I think I'm trying to remember, I think he captain quite a few franchises around the world for a similar reason. He just he does make people feel calm. Strategically, he's very um, clued in, um, and he's he is a very popular person. Um, anyway, thank you to everyone for uh, the questions. Uh, from there, that is uh, a, a wrap from me. Sorry that the technology, I think only a shish got through today. um sorry, the technology of the live chat didn't go through. Go listen to that Michelle um, and, and Santoki podcast on West Indies on 99.94. There's also uh, a couple of very good ones on the Indian podcast. One was on, why do I forget his name? One was on Prithvi Shaw. That's right, who anyone will know I'm pretty obsessed with as a player. Uh, the England podcast did the Ben Stokes one, which which is really good. But I really enjoyed the one on uh, I think it was on the vice captains, uh, which I'll probably get. I'll probably do a whole episode with Dan going ahead on that because it's a really fascinating thing. So. 99.94. Uh, we've got the new Sri Lankan podcast starting soon, so Mark and Estelle uh, will be dropping their first episode in the next couple of days. So keep an eye out for that. Um, we're trying to cover all the teams, so the more, even if your team hasn't been covered yet, the more that you can like, subscribe, review, rate, um, helps us get closer to whichever team it is that you want um, to do a podcast on. Unless that's a team I just, I'm, you know, I'm not going to do it on. I'm trying to think, who would I not do it on? Who would be like a random team that I couldn't offend too many people off? Otago Volts. They've had it too good for too long. They don't deserve a podcast. Anyway, I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa, and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week, and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Sena producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows and Makunda Banredi as the head of the YouTube content.